Hello, my name is Ilan Jerno. Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast and web series of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. We explore the complex issues and events shaping our world today from the perspective of Ayn Rand's radical philosophy of objectivism, a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. To learn about our journal, you can go to newideal.aynrand.org. And today we're broadcasting live on Zoom, Facebook, and YouTube. And if you'd like to ask a question, please join us on Zoom or on YouTube. And the YouTube uh, has Super Chat, and we'll be looking for those questions and giving them priority uh, as best we can today. Our topic today is latest developments in the pandemic. It's really a follow-up conversation with um, a guest we've had on before, Dr. Amesh Adalja, uh, to just explore some of the new developments and, and get a better understanding of where things are today. So I want to just bring you in, uh, Amesh. Welcome back to the, to the series. Thanks for having me. Uh, so there's so much to talk about, and I know you have a, a really busy schedule today. So let's just start off with um, sort of the big news right now is, I mean, this huge spike in cases, in particularly in the Sun Belt, but also elsewhere, and the, you know, this, the scarcity of testing and the delays in testing. And so I, I thought we'd start there because in other conversations we've had with you, um, you've been putting a huge emphasis on the need for testing and tracing and, and, and just sort of being able to get us a handle on where things are with the pandemic. So what are you seeing and where are we? Because there's been some improvement in the number of tests available, but it seems like we're not nearly where we need to be. Yes, we, we definitely are still making the same mistakes we made back in January, February, and March, that we are doing 700,000 tests a day, and that seems to be a, a large number if you look at it, but the fact is in places like Arizona, Florida, Texas, and California, the percent positivity of tests are rising, which tells you that our testing is being outpaced by the spread of this pandemic. And it's not surprising because many of these places, when they had these stay-at-home orders in place, failed to invest in the infrastructure that they needed, the contact tracers, having the ability to do outpatient testing with a rapid turnaround time. You can't expect a test to take seven days to get a positive result to be effective, and that a case contact tracer can actually do anything when someone's been out there for seven days spreading this virus. So it's really the exact same mistake we saw being done now at the state level. And it's not just Red, it's red states and blue states. It's people who just are failing to invest in this core function of public health. And that's why we can't, you know, we come to this position where we need to live with this virus, many people say, but we can't live with it unless the government actually does the job that it's intended to do by, by tra tracking, tracing, and isolating these patients. So I've been following the news. Florida last week had a single day total of 15,000 cases. And just in comparison, I read that South Korea hasn't registered even a total of 15,000 since the pandemic began. So it seems like we're not really doing well. Uh, I mean, the narrative that everything's fine, I think that just, it doesn't seem to track the, the reality. And I wanted to ask you a bit more about sort of the, just the mechanics of what is involved in testing and what scale we would need. So there's two elements of that. One is I've heard that we need at least 100,000 people who are doing contact tracing in the country. Does that number make sense to you? Is it right where it needs to be? Is it more or less? Because So that's the what, what I've heard as the goal number. 
So that number actually comes from my institution and some of my colleagues came up with that number, trying to look at what the number was in some of the Asian countries that controlled it. And, and they sort of uh, did some adjustments and came up with that number. I don't know that I would actually stick to a physical number, but it's clear that you have to have some metric and understanding of how many contact tracers you need for a population. In many states, we're doing contact tracing during their stay at home orders and maybe getting 12 cases in a county and then all of a sudden wondering why now when they have 200 cases their contact tracers are underwater. So it's clear that many places didn't pick the right number and, and I think it has to be based on each area and how population dense it is, what number of cases you can expect to get in that area. In some states, for example, New York, they tiered their reopening or they gauged their reopening based on regions hiring a certain number of contact tracers per 100,000 population. And I think that's a better way to think about uh, think about it. And and making sure that areas, that counties and, and cities and the health departments there are actually doing the job that they're, that they're being funded to do. And I think if you, you have to give them a metric because otherwise nobody, people are trying to get by and scrap by moving people from other places to try and do contact tracing. And we know that it's so hard to get hired by a city, a county or a state government, all of that friction and bureaucracy and Byzantine processes that make it very hard. And I know some of my friends are working in health departments and they're not able to hire people that they've already offered jobs to. It takes so long uh, to do that, they're, that they're borrowing people from the National Guard to do contact tracing and uh, that they're using state, state uh, officials for county functions. So this is really the same problem and it's not something that's only in, in specific states. I think it's probably universal across the country. So I just wanted to mention, uh, we've had you on before and, and some of the repeat viewers probably know where you're from and you're, you're on TV all the time and you're probably going to jump into another interview when we wrap up. I just want to mention that when you said your institution, I should, we should give credit. So that's the Center for Health Security at Johns Hopkins University. And in addition to being uh, affiliated with that organization, you're a practicing physician for people who are just joining us for the first time and an expert in numerous elements of what it takes to be prepared for infectious disease and how to treat them and so on. So I just want to get that context there because I, I, I just, uh, I should have mentioned it at the beginning, but I did not. So uh, just to dig in a bit more. So one of the things I, I found, and I want to know if you think this is just an anecdotal case or is it more widespread? Um, you mentioned the sort of the friction in getting people on hire to do contact tracing. One of the things I read about is just the technology as a bottleneck. So in one in in some places there's you know they have computers and they, they have reporting systems and in some places they're doing it pen and paper, and in other and, and literally people faxing in results, compiling them, running them down the office, down the car door, and just literally I, I don't know how many people watching this actually still remember what a fax machine is. I mean I know they're still around, but they're they're just so it seems like it's such an antiquated way to do it, um, and I think it was in Houston where now they're having this huge surge where there was just one fax machine was spewing out thousands of test results because that was the system they have. And it just seems like, I mean, we're in the 21st century. Like we, why, are we, why is it being done this way? You have to remember that a health department at a county or a state level, that's not a priority for the government. That's not a flashy thing that they're going to fund. And they've always chronically been underfunded and they don't actually modernize. And if you've ever been inside a health department, sometimes they're not really nice places to be. And, and it's because when you look at the core function of public health, why public health departments were founded was, was really go, goes back to the Black Death and controlling Black Death cases back in Europe. And Infectious disease has been the core function of them. However, health departments in any county or city or wherever it might be have so many things now that they've morphed to take care of from 
air pollution to fracking to nutrition to lead poisoning that the core function of it often gets neglected and it's not flashy. Nobody cares about the gonorrhea cases that they prevented from happening. Nobody's bragging about uh, STDs. And that's actually what we need them to do because that's where case contact tracers are put into place for. The reason why we don't worry about tuberculosis, even though we have 9,000 or so cases in the United States every year is because they're contact traced. And that's just not something that is flashy to a politician. They often will hire, they, they often want them to go after, um, like in, for example, in Pittsburgh where I, where I live, they, the health department will often like to go after U.S. steel and pollution rather than function, work, on, work on HIV or, or gonorrhea or chlamydia or whatever it might be, or measles cases. And it's not something that they ever fund and they don't think about it. And then they have to panic because they have to put them into place. And I think that's why they have such antiquated systems where they have to fax, do, do faxing, pen and paper. And they are trying to use things like apps that are available on phones, but then you're running into this idea, these conspiracy theories that this is somehow going to track their lives and, 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 and take over their, uh, their you know, this is some kind of 1984 Orwellian thing, which isn't true. It's just that these contact tracers are having a hard time getting people to answer the phone and, and then they're out there spreading it and then we continue to have more cases. So we wanna make it easy for contact tracers so I don't think there's any, uh, any other way out of this except for just doing the bread and butter public health uh, to get, to, get the, to a place where we can actually live with this virus. So thanks to, uh, we, we're getting some um, uh, donations through the Super Chat. Thank you for that. And there's a question I want to throw in because it's, it's relevant to what we're talking about. Uh, so on Zoom, we have a question. Isn't it too late to test and contact trace? Why not protect the high risk big time and let the low risk live and get the virus. So has the horse left the barn basically with contact tracing? Well, in many places, if you have 15,000 cases in Florida in one day, you can't imagine a contact tracer being able to get through that. So, so it is the fact that we actually squandered this second opportunity and chance that we had. When we had cases low, then, then you'd, you wouldn't have had it spiral out of control. Now uh, you, they're underwater and I don't know how they come out of it. And it is true that we're going we're gonna to have to protect our vulnerable populations. But you have to remember, it's not just nursing homes. I think we've gotten much better at, at protecting nursing home patients now. Uh, back earlier in the pandemic, we had governors forcing nursing homes to take patients, irrespective of their ability to care for them. We're in a better place there. But remember that obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, those, aren't, those are things in the community. They're in the community as well. So I don't think that you can completely isolate it. You can do a, a great job with with assisted living and, and elderly elderly care centers, but it's going to be hard to completely delimit that. And you saw what happened in Sweden, for example, but they didn't do a good job of it, uh, of, of, sort of, of protecting their, their older people. So I do think you're, they're going to pay a price in terms of deaths. It's, it's invariable that people are going to start chains of transmission that land on vulnerable individuals because there are so many people in this country that, are, that have obesity and, and other things that, that have become really common ailments. But I do think that places like Florida are not going to be able to contact trace, and it's going to be a point where where they're going to get to a position where they again don't know who's infected and who's not, and then then what starts looking attractive to them is a, a stay-at-home order again. And I think that's what we wanted to avoid, and we didn't think would happen again because we thought people would actually learn the first time and learn from countries like Taiwan, and even learn from places like New York State, but they clearly did not. So I want to just dig back into one other aspect of testing that I think, so one of the things you mentioned was that there are now delays, and I've read this between three and five days, and sometimes a week delay in just getting the results, and, and that makes the test much less useful because if the person's walking around, they can infect other people. Um, where There's a development I've read about, and maybe you can just give us sort of a layman's explanation of how does this work and what are the advantages of it, which is this idea of group testing where you pool samples and then you kind of make a cut, and if there's I mean, I don't fully understand it, so maybe you can explain what is the efficiency? Because one, one of the challenges right now is 
there's a shortage of the materials needed to test uh, and to test one-on-one. -on -one. So how does that work? What is group testing and what are the benefits? So we call this pool testing, and this is something that Dr. Fauci talked about as, a, as an innovative way out of this. And what that would do, instead of taking samples from individual people and running the tests, you take all those samples and kind of mush them all together and run a batch, maybe of 20 or 30. And if that batch turns positive, then you go back and individually test. So that's a way to get, increase the throughput, maybe save on some of the supplies and speed the efficiency. And we've done that for HIV testing uh, before, so it's not something unheard of. The question is where the only places you can do it are places where the prevalence is low. So if you did it in Arizona right now or in Miami-Dade County in Florida, all your batches are going to be positive. So it would defeat the purpose. You want to do it at a place where the prevalence is low enough that you get some negative batches and actually spare people some work. Um, so there, this is something that we can do in certain parts of the country, but you need to have a prevalence probably um, at, at a lower level than, than what's going on in some of those states. But for example, in New York, yes, you could probably batch testing would work because their percent positive test is around 1% right now. But in, in places where it's like 28% or 26%, like in Arizona, uh, it's not going to be as useful, at least overall in the state. There may be some counties or pockets. But you could also use it, for example, at a meatpacking plant or at a school or at a nursing home where you have a group of people. So this is something that we need to think about doing and operationalizing. So a uh, question we're getting uh, from one of the viewers uh, about a situation in Florida. And I'm just going to broaden it a bit. So the question specifically is uh, labs in Florida are reporting only positive 100% positivity rate because they're not reporting the negative results. I don't know the, the details of that, but I guess the, I would broaden the question to um, what is the data that you would look for in terms of what's relevant and how accurate do you think the data is right now going in uh, to all these databases? So I think it varies a bit depending upon the state. There's a couple data points I look at. I don't look at the sheer number of cases. I look at percent positivity of tests because that controls for testing and tells you if the outbreak is out of control or not out of control. Obviously, you want states to be reporting their positives and their negatives so that you can have an accurate denominator. And if that percent positivity is going from 3% or 4% all the way up above 10%, then you know something is out of control. I also look at hospitalization numbers, meaning what percentage of beds are occupied by COVID patients, what percentage of ICU beds are occupied by COVID patients, because a lot of this is really premised on preserving hospital capacity. So that's really important. And the third thing I look at, which is something that's not reported by many states, I think only Oregon reports it publicly, is in the contact tracing investigations, how many new cases are part of a chain that they already knew about? How many cases were on their radar already saying, oh, we know this person, they were in contact with so-and-so? Or are these patients getting it from places that they don't know? And they're like, this is an undetected chain of transmission. That's something that, that Oregon is reporting. And that's a really important data, data point as well. And I, I do worry about some of the data, and it's probably more the other way, because in Florida, for example, there had been lots of data irregularity. The person that was running that, uh, that the data there has actually was fired by the governor there. Um, so I actually think in, in many ways, Florida is probably understating their problem than overstating it. Overstating it. Um, but it, there, there have been data integrity problems throughout this, but I do think there's, there's, there's no way you can mistake what's happening in Florida as any kind of artifact because Miami-Dade County, is their, their ICUs are running out of space. So that's not something you can fake. Uh, that's not something that's testing, that test related or having to do with the percent positives or not reporting the positives. Those are hard concrete, that's hard concrete evidence that their outbreak is spilling into the hospitals and putting hospitals into distress. Yeah, and I read, um, you know, I remember that so the iconic moment in New York was when they brought in uh, refrigerated trucks to serve as overflow morgues. And I, I believe that in, um, I think it's Arizona, the, um, the some, some places are, are putting those kinds of trucks into uh, sort of on, um, on standby.
a couple, let's just do some rapid fire questions that we have. And then I want to get to the big topic of school reopening and the debate around that and what I think is some politicized uh, aspects to it. So one question we've had is about home testing. Is that coming soon? Is that going to help us? What's the status of that? Because um, I, I mean, I've read that there are in development tests that you could take and you can get like one a day and you'll know as soon as you're infected. How reliable? What's the timeline do you think on that? Well, I wrote a, a big report on home testing for infectious diseases. So if you Google my name and home testing, you'll see it just came out maybe about two weeks ago. And this is something I've advocated for, uh, not just for this, even before the coronavirus pandemic, I was looking at this for influenza. So we have technologies, PCR technologies that can be done at home, and they were in advanced stages of development, actually being funded through, through government grants for, for, for bioterrorism purposes to get this home testing up. And I think it is adaptable to the coronavirus. We just need to do the work to do it. I don't know that it's on the early time horizon. It is something that people have been talking about, including uh, Bill Gates, who's been a big fan of this. Uh, we do have one only, only one infectious disease you can test for at home, and that's HIV. And, and they really took, that company, Orishore, took over a decade to be able to get it through. But now the FDA has been much more amenable to this home testing as people have gotten much more sophisticated and smartphone technology being, can be coupled. So this is a clear game changer if we can get there. Uh, but I wouldn't say that it's going to happen in the next couple of months. I think that this is uh, something that's aspirational, uh, but it is something that everybody's really, really interested in. So I want to move to a, a big story uh, now, which is sort of ro rolling through, which is what's going to happen with schools. And I know you've, you've talked about this. So a couple of things just to put some context uh, for the audience. One is there was an op-ed, I think it was yesterday in the op-ed in the uh, Washington Post by four former heads of the CDC uh, complaining about the way the administration has tried to push back on the CDC's uh, uh, guidelines on school opening. Uh, and, and I think there was a lot of news around uh, Donald Trump's uh, push for that. And then the other element of the context is um, here in California, Los Angeles and San Diego's school districts have decided they're going uh, remote only, not no in-person. And, uh, you know, I think it was last week, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out some guidelines, which I strongly recommended to the extent possible, as I read it, like kids should go back to school, you know, let's make that happen. So one, what is your view on that issue? What, what's feasible? What does it look like? And two, so this issue of the, the White House versus CDC kind of aspect of the story. Sure. So I think that schools can be open safely. I think that we learned epidemiology that, epidemiologically that children aren't major drivers of infection. They are not starting outbreaks and they are relatively spared from severe consequences. There have been schools open in other parts of the country. Um, and for example, in Wyoming and Montana and Idaho that opened in around April or May and have not had any problems. We know that daycare centers for essential workers have been open. We've got that data as well. And we have some other countries experience. I know Israel right now is having some problems and that's actually the, the, uh, that's actually a, a cautionary tale because that tells you if you open a school and you don't actually follow the guidance, you're going to get an outbreak because the virus is there. So we want to open schools, but we want to make sure that schools modify their operations to make it safe. We want to make sure that they can do social distancing, that they have protocols for cases, that they have hand washing, and they, and they think about how they're going to rearrange their physical space so that children aren't interacting with each other. And we have to make sure that teachers feel safe because they are going to be some that are in the vulnerable population and other people that work at the school. So you wanna probably have some ability to do things uh, by, by teleconference for people who aren't comfortable doing it. But I think we can, we can do it and we were moving that way, especially with the American Academy of Pediatrics statement. But what's happened now is that it, 
the best, the case for schools would have been much better if the president, the vice president, and the education secretary didn't get involved because now that has triggered everybody and they believe that this is not being driven by science because clearly those three individuals have not necessarily been the advocates of science throughout this pandemic and have really been characterized by evasion and just kind of ignoring the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic. So. I think we would, have, we would have been better off at opening schools if they would have just not talked about it. Now, we, for those of us who are advocating opening schools, it's made it much harder because now uh, the, the, those three have weighed in. So I do think that we have to be very careful about doing it and we can do it. It's gonna be very hard in places where the outbreak is increasing because you're gonna get cases, you're gonna have teachers sick, you're going to have to, be, it's gonna be unable to, you're not gonna be able to have school if all the teachers are sick. So we have to think about this most likely at a district by district level and making sure that schools can actually put this into place. And that's what the CDC guidance was about. It was about how do you do this safely with the best public health evidence, not, not trying to discourage schools from opening, but saying this is the best practices. And then it got politicized because the, the, the president and vice president said, we don't want people not, we don't want the CDC to be the reason schools don't open. They were never gonna be the reason that schools didn't open. They were the way that schools were going to open. And I think this is just another emblematic uh, this is emblematic of how this whole pandemic has been handled, where the CDC has been completely sidelined and, and unable to actually do the, the job that, they, that they're supposed to be doing. And we're all worse off for it because the, the CDC is now an agency that n nobody can even, it's been so politicized and their allegiance is not to reality. I mean, they, they have to worry not necessarily about, their allegiance has been to reality, but they, their first concern is not, is this true, is this right, but how does this fit with what the White House's narrative is. So it's like the primacy of, of the White House over the primacy of, of reality here, of what's going on on the ground. And I think that's ruined the entire CDC and we'll all suffer for it for years to come. So one follow up on that. It, I read that the, CDC, the White House is asking uh, the states to report data directly to the task force and to bypass the CDC. What, what, what do you make of that? Does that make, is, there some, is there some defensible reason for doing something like that? So it's going to go directly, not to the task force, but to HHS. And I think that this is something that's interesting because the CDC has always had this national health surveillance network set up for, for years and years and years. Hospitals are very used to using it, but now we don't, they say that they're going to improve it, that it doesn't work as well. They want to make it better, but it's clear, it's odd to do this in the middle of, of, a, of a political, of a pandemic. And you automatically are going to second guess it because we know that this has all been politicized and we know that the CDC has been the thorn in the side of the administration because they, they basically have been trying to speak the truth to the public and and have been silenced for it. So I, I think I'm, I'm very suspect about it. And then you have to think, I was just texting with one of my friends who's the chief medical officer at a hospital. I said, what, what is this change going to do? He said, it's going to add about 20 hours per day, uh, per week to our work that we don't have these systems that they want us to use. And they're just changing it on a dime. And, and they're not confident that this data is going to be actually used for proper uses. So they're actually burdening a hospital with a new reporting requirement in the middle of a pandemic while we're trying to take care of patients. So I don't think that this was the, the best policy. And I don't think that we're going to get much value from it. And it's probably just more evidence of the fact that they're trying to minimize the role of the CDC, which is the premier public health agency in the country. So uh, two last questions. I know you have to run. So one from the Super Chat uh, viewers asking, uh, do we know if younger infected people, even if they survive, would have long-term organ damage? Is that something that, is, what, what do we know on that? So if you have severe illness and you survive, whether you're young or you're old, you likely will have some decrement in your physiology for some period of time. You may have decreased lung capacity. You may have had damage to your heart or your kidney, and it's going to take some time for you to recover. Mild cases that don't require hospitalization, most of them are going to go back to normal uh, pretty quickly without any long-term uh, effects to their health. But this is, it's going to be a little bit variable. Each person has a little bit of idiosyncrasy. So it really is more reflective of how 
critically ill you became, if you were in a hospital, if you're on a ventilator, then you clearly can expect to have a long recovery with possibly some permanent organ dysfunction. So, so final question before you have to run. Um, just to change the tone and the mood a little bit, I, I've been impressed with a lot of what's happening on the scientific front, sort of breaking new, new, new ground and, and the, just the sheer focus of the world scientific community on trying to tackle this problem. I'm wondering from your perspective, what are some of the things you're excited about that you think would be, so you mentioned one thing that would be a game changer, which is home testing. What else is on the horizon that you think this is gonna be, this is, uh, this is another game changer or this could really accelerate things for us? Well, obviously vaccines are the highest on my list because that's the only way we remove this as a threat. And we're seeing more and more data accumulate. It's all looking positive, but this is still a little bit far off. So it's not something to get excited about yet today, but it is something that I'm hopeful about. There are other drugs that we're using that can maybe decrease the mortality rate of people. So we've gotten good data on the use of steroids in people who require oxygen, actually decreasing mortality by about a third in some patients. And this is a simple drug that we can give people. We're, we're making synthetic antibodies that may be something that we can use in severely ill people. We're doing convalescent plasma of the blood of recovered individuals, but now they're also making synthetic antibodies like what we call monoclonal antibodies, which were really game-changing when it came to Ebola uh, and decreasing Ebola's mortality. So there's a lot of hope there as well. Um, so, so those are the things that I'm most, most excited about. But I mean, overall, it, it's kind of a, a, a dismal situation that we're in uh, and, and, we, and we, can't, we can expect to be in this dismal situation for, for some period of time with these roving outbreaks and hotspots and the hospital capacity compromises all over the country for the next year or so. And, and I think that th this is so disruptive. So it's hard to be super optimistic about the whole thing in general, because this is all, you know, an, an abject failure that we have to acknowledge. Uh, and, uh, and the same mistakes keep getting made over and over again. So that kind of tempers any enthusiasm I have of anything. Well, I appreciate your time, Amesh, and I, I just want to share just a personal uh, uh, thank you. I, I, I watched a lot of your interviews uh, on, on the media. I just I learned a lot from what you're doing and your articles. And thanks for joining us this week. Maybe we can do a follow-up sometime soon to see where things are uh, when you have time, uh, maybe in a few weeks or, time or so. Thanks again. All right. Bye. Bye. Well, thank you uh, to all of you for joining us today live here on New Ideal. Uh, I just want to share with you a couple of uh, resources for uh, this topic that we've explored today. Uh, my colleague Ankar Gatte and I have written an op-ed that was published last week in uh, The Hill, and you can find it on New Ideal. It's called, the title is, It's Past Time for a Pandemic Testing Strategy, which talks about the role of government in uh, sort of investing in having preparedness and the resources and the means to detect new pathogens and actually test at scale and trace people who are infected and then obviously isolate them rather than moving down the in the direction which we did in this country, which is mass lockdowns. So I highly recommend that op-ed if you're interested in the issue of testing where we are. And then another resource that you can find on New Ideal is this major white paper by Ankar Gatte uh, the title is A Pro-Freedom Approach to Infectious Diseases. You can find that at newideal.einrand.org. It's a substantive analysis of uh, how we got here, what went wrong, and what is the path forward? What are some solutions? And that's a, it's a full uh, analysis, I think, for what is the, the proper approach for government here if you take the principle of individual rights seriously and recognize the necessary function of government having a role in uh, combating and detecting uh, sort of severe infectious diseases 
so I highly recommend that. You can download a PDF if you want to print it and read it on paper. You can read it online. You can listen to it. We have a, um, a, an audio version of the article through our podcast, which uh, I hope you will subscribe to uh, and join us. Uh, and that way you won't miss an episode. So those are some resources uh, for you guys. Final suggestion is we're going to be here again, but uh, to get notification, join uh, the YouTube subscription if that's how you're joining by clicking on the red button uh, to get notifications of all of our new content and make sure to click on the bell to get email notifications too. For those of you listening on the podcast, I want to encourage you to one, subscribe and make sure you get automatically downloaded all the episodes uh, that we publish and then tell your friends and leave a review and let uh, help spread the word about the work that we're doing it. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for those of you who were active on the super chat. We appreciate your financial support and your interest in our work. And for those of you who want to help the Institute grow and, and make sure more content like this is uh, uh, brought uh, to the public, uh, become an ARI member. It's a way for you to support the Institute with recurring monthly uh, donations and it starts at $10. And I think it's a huge uh, benefit to, to us and uh, to you, I think in creating uh, more content that spreads these ideas to a wider audience. Well, thank you all. We'll be here again next week. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.